This is Baratunde with a very special episode of Spit for you. Normally with this show, I sit down with a musician who you know and love and a scientist who you probably don't know, but definitely love a little bit more by the end of our time together. And we take this approach to find the story in the science of DNA. We have explored race, we have explored adoption and sperm donation. But this show has a different format. It's still me and two people, but we are going back a little farther to the foundation of what genetic testing even involves to the data and to the big questions around what it means to spit in a tube and share your data with other people, with a company, what it means for all of us to live in this very connected world where our information is a necessary input to get all the conveniences we have become attached to. We're going to talk about data. We're going to talk about privacy. We're going to talk about permission and controls in this hyper-connected world we're living in. And we're going to do that because I think it's important. And the folks who I make this show with at iHeart and 23andMe gave me the keys. I can say whatever I want, y'all. In the past few years, I have started to question how the system is set up. Do I really need to disclose as much about myself as I have been in order to live a quality life? At the exact time that I was approached to host this show, I was really coming into my own as a critic of technology. So I couldn't just say yes to a show sponsored by a genetic testing company. I had to do my research and I read the terms of service myself from front to back, which were very readable to my surprise. I had some privacy-oriented activist friends take a look, and they said, you know, this is pretty good. In fact, I demanded to speak with the highest level people at 23andMe before I would agree to do the show because I wanted to understand what they were doing to protect the information about me that they had and to use it in a responsible way that I would always feel like I had some choice and some agency in that matter. I got onto the product because I trusted the representation of what that product was. And I had personal curiosity. My older sister had recently done a 23andMe and she was curious about my results because we don't share a father. So there's some mystery in there that science might help resolve. But this episode returns to that original hesitation I had about doing this show, that question, what happens with our information? And this show is not just about 23andMe and my information in those terms of service. It's actually a, a bigger view we're going to take on what it means to be connected in this data-driven world and what some of the costs are. On a security level, what does it mean to try to have people responsibly hold our data? And on a larger system level, with artificial intelligence and algorithmic recommendations on everything from what we buy to how many years we might face in the criminal justice system, this stuff really matters. So I'm happy you're joining me. I have two other people to join me. Gina Matthews is a computer science professor whose research focuses on algorithmic decision-making, on bias, on accountability, on essentially what we do with all the data that we've collected. She was a fellow at the Data and Society Research Institute. She received the 2018-2019 MAGIC grant, which is the best type of grant to receive, the MAGIC grant from the Brown Institute for Media Innovation. Gina, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's Thank you. And we also have Ariel Silverstone. He is a data privacy and security expert. He spent the past 25 years focusing on really complex security processes and policies for 
all kinds of organizations, including companies that work with genetic information. His title is incredible, external data protection officer and managing director at Data Protectors. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting us. I'd like to start with you, Ariel, because I think there's information that's about us that's in systems, and I want confidence to know that it is being managed responsibly and securely. And then further downstream, there's what we do with that information. On this first point, on securing the data, what's an external data protection officer? So we bring the people together that can protect data best. There is such a lack of uh, professionals with experience in the world. So we teach our companies how to protect their data. We also interact uh, between the company and data protection authorities, especially in Europe, and advise them on how to solve for demanding situations. Okay, so you're really deep in there. How did you come to this field? A few years ago, I was uh, in the middle of the computer revolution in Silicon Valley. What do you mean you were in the middle of it? So I went to high school in California. So you were literally in the middle of it? In the middle of it, yeah. So I got very interested in computer science and security and privacy back when I was 14. Did something happen when you were 14 to get you interested in this? At my high school, some students uh, were contacted by the FBI <laughs> okay. Uh, because they were doing things they weren't supposed to do. And Freaking some, and hacking, like early yeah, phone before, network hacking days. Yeah. So the word hacking is actually good. Yeah. It's the freaking that's not good. So, And just to clarify, freaking is when people are getting unauthorized access to the phone network? Yes. Yes. You were saying the FBI made some calls to some but, uh, More than calls. The FBI showed up uh, in front of some of my schoolmates. Yeah. And they had some explaining to do. Because they were using computers to do things that people didn't think they could or would do. And that's all we do in security. Your job is to decide what you could do with a computer or what you should do with a computer. My job is what you shouldn't do. So since then, you've been on the journey that's got you now at Data Protectors, but with some of the other type of risks you've been exposed to or problems you've seen in terms of trying to secure computer systems? Sure. So many people don't know how to secure computer systems, not because of evil, but because they just don't know. So they're looking for people to teach them, and opinions vary. But I've seen where data was used for bad, for example, to human trafficking, for example, to affect a balanced transfer within a bank. But I've seen where computers and computer security really affect people, for example, One of the systems I was responsible for controlled the temperature of heart-lung machines at hospitals. Imagine if that computer just shut down for no reason. People could die. One other question that's been on my mind every day, because I open up my news app, and I see the same story. I see organization, company, government, entity X has lost millions of personal records of category Y. Social security numbers, phone numbers, bank records, entire social media profiles. Why does this continue to happen? Because companies generally see data protection as a tax, and they like paying tax as much as you and I. So they do either the bare minimum needed, or they are very sensitive for security like 23andMe because they know they wouldn't have a business if there was a break. Then they invest more resources and make it a higher priority. That's it. It just costs them money, and they, many of them don't want to spend it. Or so they, that's the primary yeah. one. The, the secondary one is, look, as security people, 
we've got to be right 100% of the time. A hacker only has to be lucky once. So processes have to be fixed. Well, I'm glad someone like you is helpfully on the job. Thank you. I want to bring you in, Gina. I'd love for you to explain. Similar, we know a bit from Ariel how he got started. What was your introduction to computers and computing? How did you end up in this field? I added computers and computing as a second major when I was an undergrad. Once I started with programming, I just really liked the instant gratification nature of it, the ability to change something and and also just build a whole world that you wanted to build. I went to graduate school at UC Berkeley, which also was kind of the heart of the dot-com boom there in Silicon Valley, and was super excited about the potential of computing. I felt like it was kind of a fundamental human good. It was automating tasks that were drudgery. It was connecting people. It was giving more people voice. I just felt super good about it. And then over time, I just saw more and more uses. Not that those other uses ceased to exist, but I saw the funded uses, the pushed uses, drifting more and more to surveillance and manipulation. Over time, I just felt more and more compelled to try to do something to change that direction. On the front end of your career, you're hands-on with computing, and now you are hands-on with trying to shift the direction of computing. But how does that early access and that early atmosphere shape your perspective now? It's interesting. I went to a 20-year reunion of my grad research group. I have a lot of academic siblings who are very highly placed at big companies. And some of them will even say, I'm basically just a network plumber. I mean, they're you know incredibly talented systems building folks, but they feel very distant from the impact of those platforms and systems on the lives of individuals. I just can't do that. I've been a system builder, and I enjoyed that very much. And I've been a security expert type person. But making the car go faster and locking the car down into its current course doesn't seem to make a lot of sense when you don't agree with the way it's being driven. Can you explain kind of your approach on this topic, and especially around big data systems or algorithms. What is your role in this? I think we're right to worry about accidental breaches or hackers getting in and taking data. But I'm honestly more concerned about things that I consider to be unacceptable that are perfectly legal. <laughs> um, just today, it's interesting, I read uh, that it, France is banning analytics on judges' decisions. Whoa. It's interesting, right? That's public information. So the pattern of decisions that judges make, they yeah. don't want people doing analytics on that. It's the same kind of thing. When that happens to you and you realize it's not just little pieces of data, but people are stringing it together into big conclusions about your life, you feel violated. And this kind of let us surveil you let us analyze you, but don't you dare do it to us, is a pattern I'm not at all happy with. So I worry about the Wild West of surveillance and manipulation of individuals, and especially about big decisions that are made about people's lives based on the little pieces of information about them that make up big data. Do you think that enough people understand the balance and the trade-off that we're making. I think there are decisions I've made historically where I just didn't think about it. I was happy to get the free storage from the service. I was happy to get a discount or coupons from the grocer. How do you see awareness of that balance or the ability to challenge it 
developing over time? I think a lot of people are uneasy with it, but don't see an effective way to be a citizen of the modern world without it because we haven't demanded a different playing field. The boundary for invasion of privacy really shifts over time. A photo of me posted, is that invading my privacy? You think with facial recognition, you can find anybody. And what if I'm just in a picture someone took someplace? Do you think just your location information is personal data? It's just longitude, latitude. Right. But if you assemble that over time, you see where you work, where you live. Do you go to a religious institution? Do you go to a psychiatrist? So many things that you might think are not private become private with more ability to analyze and link it with other types of information. So I want to play a, a game with both of you. I call it, what's the worst that can happen? And so I'd like your imaginations and your experience to be brought to bear on this question. I'll start with you, Ariel. There are theoretical risks associated with data breaches and hacking. And then there's things that actually have happened. What are the risks that most concern you? Where are the multiple alarms ringing in your business and in your life? That's a great question. So number one, most of our data, our name in the U.S., even our picture, if it becomes uh, hacked, so what? I mean, we used to have that in the phone books. We used to have it in our uh, high school yearbooks. Right. We printed it in a physical thing called the Facebook. So we have points of data that are out there. The points of data by themselves do absolutely nothing. I can even give you a copy of your DNA, but it doesn't mean anything to anyone because there's no context. Mm. When there is context and when the data can be made to do things it wasn't meant to be, for example, not a GPS location, but a GPS location over time, which shows you how you are going around the city of London, for example. Right. So when that is out there, not only can it be marketed to provide you things, air quotes, but it is also dangerous because of two things that people don't normally think about. The first one is, anticipating what you're going to do. So if a big company knows that there are 30-year-old uh, single people in this building, they're more likely to offer lattice there. But the biggest threat is there is no technology today that would act to limit them trying to change you or your preference. So not just anticipating what I want, but creating what I want, manipulating what right. I want. And it actually exists, right? We used to call it marketing, but in the future, it can actually go into the psychological realms. As you have more and more data, you can literally get into a situation that you're being manipulated to buy, to sell, or to do any other action, good or bad. Right. That's pretty scary. You're playing the game very well. Thank you. It's a terrifying future. Gina, do you want to jump in on what's the worst that can happen? What are the grounded fears and concerns that you have based on your experience in this area. I love this game. And in fact, I play this game exactly when I give talks about this. The thing that I think, in fact, is happening to you and is super important is big decisions made about your life based on that big data. Will you have access to credit? Will there be police in your neighborhood? Will you even hear about of a job that's available? Right. How will your performance on a job be rated? Will your insurance rates go up? Will you have access to a university? Big, big decisions about our lives are being made with little pieces of information that we cannot anticipate the risk of. Your insurance rates go up if you purchase plus-size clothing, 
What if you purchase it for somebody else? Your interest rates go up if you charge marriage counseling because, you know, that could have a big financial impact on your life. There's lots of little things that you don't have any way of anticipating the outcome it could have. Well, follow-up question on the insurance rates and plus-size clothing. Can you explain that a little further? Because I did not know that. Yeah, so information about your purchasing habits can be shared with insurance companies. Just like when you go to get a job, you can voluntarily sign away rights for them to look at your credit history, your social media history when you're trying to get into the country and get a visa. There's many times you can say no, but if you want that job or you want that visa, you might have to say yes. And then you have voluntarily given people access to all sorts of deep wells of information about you. That's a perfect segue to my personal experience with this. I went on this data detox journey where I basically collected all the information that had been collected on me. It's a big social platform, search engines, credit agencies, data brokers. I found people with profiles of me that I'd never heard of. And a lot of the information was inaccurate. I was frustrated by that because I thought, well, you're supposed to be big tech. You're supposed to know all these things. But I was also relieved because I'm like, thank goodness they got that wrong. But then I'm like, but are they going to make these big life decisions, Gina, that you're talking about? Do I want them making those decisions based on accurate information about me or inaccurate information? Like what is best for me, you know? Yeah, you tell me you guess correctly and it's private information or you guess incorrectly and you make an illegitimate decision about me. And this is another fact. If you don't participate in data collection, then people will make decisions about you based on people that they determine to be like you for whatever definition that is. Yeah, these what shadow profiles that some companies create to kind of mimic the population that doesn't necessarily have an account with them, but they can still be represented in a database. Sometimes we call them avatars, even though they don't have a picture. But there are some companies out there that create an avatar that knows to some degree what you're going to buy next week, next year, which is why the intent behind the GDPR in Europe was to give people the right to rectify their data. Right. And also a declaration where companies got that data. You brought up GDPR, Ariel. This is the general data protection regulation rules set across the EU that a lot of us experienced through new pop-ups on websites we visited and <laughs> forcing us to acknowledge a very legal-sounding thing. What have been the practical results of GDPR, you know, in terms of what you just described? So here's the situation out there. The GDPR has been in effect for a year. There's over 300,000 cases in Europe involving either complaints from individuals or data breaches. Data breaches about 90,000. There's more than 56 million euros in penalties already levied in the first year. Presumably in 2019, it's going to be much, much higher. The law has been created to some degree because they want to get to a point where a potential penalty will be painful for those organizations. Yeah. All right, so we've got a lot more complaint activity. We've got some fine levying activity. Do you see a shift in actual behavior by companies in yes. response to this? Yes, absolutely. So I see behavior shift in two different areas. First, in Europe, people are asking a lot more questions. Mm. The individual citizenry is more aware, and they're asking more questions, and companies that before didn't have a data protection officer now does. Right. 
So there's over half a million data protection officers in Europe right now. Full employment for data protectors. Well, there's only 17,000 licensed professionals, but that's... So I'm hearing a great job opportunity here for those those of you looking for a new field to get into. Data protector, growing market. Go ahead. Absolutely. But the exciting changes in the U.S. There are companies in the U.S. that have never worried about data protection to that level. But now, if they play in Europe, they have to play by European rules. In the U.S., many companies have started asking questions they never asked before. Right. How do I protect the data so I won't get fined? How do I protect the data so I won't be in the newspapers? And how do I protect the data so customers will not stop buying from me? Well, that sounds like a good story. And I'd love to hear, Gina, from you. We've gotten shaken a bit by the negative possibilities. But what are you seeing in terms of a shift in a better direction? Whether it's you know how we put some limits around the recommendations and algorithms and these big life decisions that are going to affect so many of us, where is the oversight emerging from that? I think the GDPR is a good first experiment in this space. I'm happy to see it. I think in the academic community, in the practitioner community, there's a lot of discussion about things we can do. And that's a step in the right direction. So things like explainable AI algorithms so that it's not just a recommendation based on machine learning with big data that can't be explained. You can link it back to a particular data point and its weight in the decision. Doing things like looking at the demographics of the training data, there's ways to look for patterns of bias in decisions. Algorithms and systems developed and tested on a certain demographic are not going to automatically perform well on another. One of the things that emerges is how old this challenge is. I remember learning that the medical field, in terms of both treatments and drug development, has this very long history of using the male body as the default human. Every recommendation, dosages, treatment, were all designed for this kind of average male body. And it turns out that's not the average body in the world. There are many different types of bodies and we're going back and people are kind of filling in the blanks. When I'm hearing you talk about opting in and having more accurate systems, having blanks in the data set, it seems to me that A, we want a representation of as many as possible in this tool that's defining our whole future, so long as B, it's paired with a level of accountability, oversight, correctability, you know, in terms of we're going to find mistakes, no system's ever perfect, but do we have a mechanism to correct those mistakes and serve people in the process? But to count on the goodwill of a company also doesn't feel like a good long-term plan for humanity. (laughs) That's exactly right. As human beings, we stink in self-regulation. It's just not going to happen. Plus, look, the principles are simple. The first principle is transparency. Here's what I'm going to collect from you, and here's why. Then there's the accountability actually do only the things I said I'm going to do. And then rectification. You got to know about something that is wrong about your data. If you don't know, you can't fix it. And then your ability to both correct it or have it deleted. I think surveillance is sold to people based on 
the ability to benefit their lives, but then they don't necessarily get that in return. Hmm. Like, for example, I was just at a conference, AI for Good, in Geneva. That sounds great. We were talking about all sorts of potential great things, like 70% waste in our food distribution systems or the ability to get better medical care, to reduce inefficiencies in our transportation system. That still doesn't mean that it's going to benefit the people that you surveilled and manipulated to get it. I think we need better answers than companies just out of the goodness of their heart returning to people the efficiencies that come from artificial intelligence and machine learning and big data and algorithms. People think that we're going to share the benefits, but I don't think that we have a structure to really enable the sharing of those benefits right now. I agree. I would like to give us an example, a real example of something that takes place today. Yeah. And then I would like to suggest a solution. Yes, this is perfect. My co-host, Ariel here, taking us to the next level. I think the solution will actually come with the help of big tech. Companies like 23andMe now have an incentive to request an overarching privacy framework in the United States. Why? Well, the GDPR is all of Europe, but in the U.S., the privacy laws that exist, and there are many of them, more than 120, exist at the level of a city, a county, or a state. But a company like the ones I mentioned, we cannot expect them to comply with something like 17,000 different jurisdictional privacy laws. If every one of them is going to be different from every other, there's no way to comply with that. So they should champion, using their big budgets, the situation where the U.S. Senate, the U.S. Congress, comes together and makes a countrywide, national privacy framework with a national agency that regulates privacy. Because right now in the U.S., that's just the FTC, and they have a day job. I want to remember some of the good things. I asked you what the worst-case scenario was earlier. It was a fun game. I want to ask you what's the best-case scenario. How would we operate if you had your say completely or at least a bit more? Ariel, what's the best that could happen? Well, one best solution would be for everyone to be aware of his or her value and also have their profile with certain bits, perhaps censored, stored in a digital way for which they can give access when they want the access to be given about what they want the access to be given. Again, not to mention everything about Europe is great because they certainly have their own challenges. In Europe, there's a new law called PSD2. PSD2 allows people to say, okay, my bank has such and such information about me. If an insurance company wants to see my data from my bank, they got to ask me to approve or disapprove or automatically disapprove the sharing of the data. To make it easy, it's tied to people's cell phones, for example. So you get a text, the company wants to get your data, and then you approve. Then they can make something, ideally, better tailored to you. Now, the distance to get there in the U.S. is a bit long, but that's one example. Gina, what's the best that can happen? Well, I think that there's a lot of potential for optimizing our world. I mean, our transportation system could use a lot of efficiency gains. Our food distribution system could use a lot of efficiency gains. Connecting people, getting people the information they need just in time, helping us navigate our world, find things. There's a lot of power there. It's often 
powerful for both good and ill. We don't look at both sides. We need a collective will to say to turn technology to the uses we want and prevent it in cases we don't. And really that has to be done with legislation or some kind of collective control. I'm worried about big decisions made algorithmically about people's lives, but human decision-making is no picnic either. People make a different decision before lunch and after lunch. They make snap decisions based on crazy things. We haven't exactly been following hiring law anyway. If you see a candidate, you can make a biased decision based on gender or race or disability status and not admit you're doing it. But people at least do grow. They consider other information. You can appeal to them. You can convince them to move forward and progress. Mm. Artificial intelligence systems, machine learning systems put inside a black box are institutionalizing the past. People think they're really progressive. I see a great potential for a mix of human decision-making and automated decision-making where people are deployed not to rubber stamp decisions because that's a bad use of people. They just blank out and don't really engage on every decision, but to debug decisions. Mm -hmm. But that is going to mean incentivizing teams of people to actually find problems. And no company is going to be truly incentivized to find problems in their system. So we need adversarial testing. We need access to data. We need to ask the question, what is going to incentivize this to get better? Because there's so many systems. I've been doing a bunch of work in criminal justice systems. And in criminal justice systems, if they're making the wrong decision, you know what they say? You're just complaining because you're guilty. It's not like a bug in your iPhone that a bunch of people report and eventually it goes away, even though in your world it feels like you're the only one that sees this bug and no one else does. In things like criminal justice, there may be no incentive for it to get better unless we force transparency and accountability and adversarial testing and things like that, which we're not doing. Well, I feel like we're making some progress. I think that... I definitely was frightened a bit by some of the visions you've painted and some of my own experience and research in this area. I even think privacy is often not the best word to describe what we're really getting into. For me, it's words like permission, consent, sovereignty, agency, self-determination. Building those into the system as well is a necessary evolution of this whole platform. Can we layer in that level of accountability, transparency, adversarial testing, so that the benefits of these systems accrue to more and that we're highlighting and reducing the downside so we can maximize all the good stuff that we know is possible. We have a long, long way to go. And the world's moving fast. This is not going to happen automatically. Listeners should not be like, oh, there's a lot of ways we know how to do this. It'll just happen if we're patient. That's my point, is that where we are used to computer systems improving, In this way, they will not improve unless we fight for it. I think there's this famous quote, like, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. Big statement. I don't know where it was originally stated, but I also don't think it's quite true. I think people bend it toward justice. And there's constantly, in every era of technology, in every age of any society, you got to fight for your freedom. You've got to put in the work and not assume that a firmware update is just going to come along with rights installed, right? Yeah. With dignity installed, with respect installed. It's like, no, we're going to have to argue for that and constantly agitate for it and fight for it and ask better questions, even if the answers aren't already right there. Doing this kind of conversation is definitely helping me see that picture even more clearly. Ariel? 
Yeah, but there is one thing that every company can do, and we should demand that company. Okay, yes, let's get specific. Okay, so first, life cycle. Everybody knows the term life cycle. How does life end with death? Companies that collect data frequently forget the last step in the life cycle. So I've seen companies that keep data, sometimes even credit card data, that is 20 years old. Yeah. What are you going to do with the 20-year-old credit card data? You take that fact, and you take the fact that, again, I hate to be a cheerleader for the GDPR alone, but... I see your side job here. It's <laughs> literally cheerleader for the GDPR. But the thing is, the GDPR also requires companies to make sure the data is always up to date. So since data, once it's put on the internet, rarely dies, it's up to organizations to, to automatically, ideally, delete the data. When you collect the data, decide how long it's going to live. The companies also get a lesser requirement to spend money. I'm aware, for example, one company in the U.S. deleted some five yottabytes of data because they had that much data historically. I know a lot about computers, but yottabytes, I think I've heard that once in my life. That's just a lot, right? Yeah. It's just a technical it, term for like a lot. It's a whole lot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, you think about... Uh, there is a natural incentive, I think, for organizations to just minimize liability. Data is seen as the new oil in some circles, as the currency, as this thing of value. But it's also a liability. Now, this is a personal question for you, Ariel, because we spoke briefly about this. I want to bring it back down to individual level and data, because you, Mr. External Data Protection Officer, Mr. I've been in computer security since I was 14 years old, you've used 23andMe. I do. And we rarely actually have people on the show talking directly about this service in particular, but I'm just curious why you chose to use the service and what you got out of it. When I was growing up in Israel, I only had uh, 12 relatives in my family tree. My grandparents never talked about Europe before the Holocaust. Mm. They didn't want to remember. At a certain point, I felt a little bit ungrounded. So I used 23andMe, and I found some hints for geographical distribution of my family. A year later, I was in Poland, decided to go with investigators to different archives and to look up things, and careful what you wish for. <laughs> Today, I have about 13,000 blood relatives that I'm aware of. There were second cousins living next door or one street over yeah. that I didn't know existed. And now they do, and we're planning a reunion, but... It's hard to plan a reunion for 13,000 people. <laughs> yes, mm -hmm. that's called a festival yeah. at that scale. That's, that's right, and we're going to give shirts out. So I have family in Australia, in the U.S., of course, Canada, Israel. Yeah. But I also have relatives in Uruguay, in Switzerland, and in many other countries. And now I have a family. That's beautiful. Thank you. But before I used them, I did my own assessment. I won't disclose exactly everything I did, but... <laughs> But I certainly got to a comfort level. Yeah. And one of those things is the simple fact that before they share your data with anyone, they ask your permission. If you agree, then they share the data points that you agreed to share. It can be health or it can be just familial with the people that you want them to share it with. You have the control. Now, in the world of de-identified data, in other words, when they collect 2 million genomes and they find certain probabilities or discoveries or what have you, I'm happy for my DNA to be used for that. Maybe they'll find a better uh, pill for me and I, I can grow hair again. But before I used them, I did my own due diligence. Yeah. 
that's similar to my story. I looked into it and I was like, okay, I'm good with this. There are parts of it that I'm sure I maybe won't be so great with down the line. I'll be vigilant and try to pay attention and look out for that possibility. But for what I've gotten out of it, it felt like a choice that I was willing to make. And I think as we start to wrap this up and think about what needs to happen, it sounds like there's three levels of activism and engagement. There's the individual. We should all be better about knowing what we're signing up for. And to the extent that we have a choice to not sign up, exercise that choice. I know in some cases it's really more compulsory, but where you can exercise it. Then there's the companies, the people who are actually holding all this information, making their decisions, and who won't always make good decisions out of the goodness of their heart. And so making sure that they are more accountable, incentivized in a structured way. And then there's our GDPR cheerleader over here. He will never let me forget that government at a national level and potentially even international as the internet knows no bounds, but certainly at national levels, needs to act and step in. Because right now, without an enforcement mechanism, it's hard for us to feel protected. And it's actually hard for companies to maybe who want to do the right thing to have a, a simple way to try to execute that. Am I missing something in my attempt to kind of synthesize everything in a paragraph as far as what else our listener needs to know about how to get to the next step? First of all, it's your data. If you don't care about it, if you share it freely, don't expect others to protect <laughs> it for you. The second bit is this. Every time you get a frequent flyer card. Any kind of loyalty card, yeah. Think about what it is you're giving up. There are some things for which sharing data is perfect. But in reality, what you have is a situation where your data is offered to roughly 2 million websites every time you open search. Decide what it is you want and go find out who has it. It's not as hard as it was a year ago, but you have to take the first step. Gina, is there any extra advice you want to offer to our listener? Don't underestimate the power of showing up and asking questions and writing and expressing your opinion and caring. There's not nearly enough of that. And there's a lot of stuff happening that really could use some eyeballs and some comments and some outrage. Here, here. I would second that. And I want to thank both of you for showing up, for asking questions, for sharing your opinions, and for so clearly caring. Thank you for thank you uh, doing this special podcast. And thank you for giving these issues this platform and voice. Want to dig in more on today's topics and guests? Check our show notes. And if you enjoyed the episode, share it with a friend, all your friends, and be sure to leave a review. If you want more surprising stories about how we're all related, search and follow Spit on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Spit is an iHeartRadio podcast with 23andMe. I'm Baratunde Thurston. You can find out more about me at baratunde.com or on social media wherever Baratune Days are found.